Welcome to the mine. We're so glad you folks are here tonight. Hey, I got a lot of announcements that I need to just run down through real quick because I don't want to take too long. But uh, in fact, I had to write all these down or I'm going to forget them. Um, Because a lot of times during the week, I'm like, yeah, and then Tuesday and I forget. Net Bibles. Some of you have been asking. The Net Bible that I use on Tuesday and and whatever, actually, every time you hear me. um, We have in our bookstore the study edition of the Net Bible, the reader's edition, and new compact editions, which are really nice. Uh, I would encourage you to go over there on Sunday and check those out. They're a great gift for somebody else. The Net Bibles, I think the best new translation out there, and I love it. And uh, so anyway, the Net Bibles, you can get them in our bookstore. Uh, also, a reminder, for those of you that are following along, step two of the spiritual roadmap is now up on our website. So if you're looking for that, that is now up on the web, and that's off of the Mine website. Announcement number three, and this was given to me by my superiors, all right? I am to announce that no children are to be left unattended. In other words, if your children are not in the children's program, then they need to be in here with you on Tuesday evenings. All right. I guess we're having problems and I don't know about those problems because I'm in here with you. All right. So that announcement. Uh, Third, we're going to be handing out again these forms tonight. For first-time visitors, if this is your first time in the mine, you get one of these. But I did want to announce this to everybody. As you get these, like if you read a book of the Bible and you want to fill one of these out or whatever, it's one form for one thing. So in other words, like if you come to the mine, you get one. If you read a book of the Bible, you get another one to fill out. So it's like, don't put like, we've had several people who like, I I did a verse, I did a book of the Bible, I came to the mind, whatever. It's like three or four on one sheet. You're shortchanging yourself. Use a sheet for each one of those things. And we're going to be giving more of these out, obviously, in the mind in the weeks ahead as well. Um, All right. Next announcement. Anybody willing to help with kiosk check-in or greeting meet with my wife, Lisa, right after the mine in the lobby for just like two minutes? Uh, and if you don't know who Lisa is, um, she'll jump up and down. Anyway, uh, yeah. So that's going to be right after. And then the final announcement is this. And many of you have been asking about this since you've heard about it. Some of you, this will be the first time maybe you've heard about this, but it's okay. Next week, all right, next Tuesday night, we're going to begin taking names For those who are seriously interested in going to Israel in the spring of 2009. Now, here's the deal, all right? Uh, As it looks now, and obviously we're giving you generality so that you can begin to get an idea if this is something you really want to be involved in, because we want to take names of just those who are seriously interested. It looks like it's going to be a minimum of 10 to 14 days. In other words, minimum would be 10 days, probably extending if you want to, to 14 days. And here's the deal. The 10 days would be Israel. But we felt like if we're taking all that money and all that time to go to that part of the world, we would really like to take an extra four days for what little bit of cost it is to go from Israel down into Egypt to see the pyramids all of that, and 
not only to do the footsteps of Jesus through Israel, but to do the footsteps of Moses through Egypt. All right? Now, that trip, that 14-day trip, is probably going to cost about $3,500 per person. And we are staying at, you know, we're not staying at the cave at the side of the road, okay? We're going to be staying in nice hotels. Everything's going to be secure. The tour buses that we're going to be going on are all, you know, the common tour buses that go through the region. Uh, So anyway... $3,500 per person is what it looks like, and that includes your airfare to and from. Uh, That includes, you know, the trip proper, but obviously there's going to be some extra fees in there. But that's most of it, all right? That's most of it. So, again, if you put your name down next week, that's not like, okay, I have to go. We're just trying to get an idea of how many people, knowing it's going to be for about that length of time in the spring of 2009, and that's what it's going to cost, would you be interested in going with my wife and I to Israel to do that? We're going to be having some cool Bible studies while we're there, and I think it's just going to be a life-changing experience for those of you that can go with us, all right? And this is going to be open to anyone here at Cornerstone, but obviously since you guys are in the mine, I give you guys first dibs, all right? Because I like you, you know, so... All right. All right, guys, let's pray, and then let's have uh, Seth and Phil come lead us in worship tonight. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity again that you give us to be here tonight, just to look into your word and to be encouraged. Uh, God, just thank you for bringing us through another week and just for us being able to see the, the demonstration of your presence and power in our lives again this week. And Lord, I just pray that each and every one of us that have come to this place tonight would just allow you to fill us up with your spirit and with your word and just be so refreshed and encouraged when we leave here tonight to just be able to take us through the rest of this week till we can come back on Sunday. God, go with us now and just give us a great time in Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Great job as always. Great worship on Tuesday nights. Ephesians chapter 2, and while you're turning there, I just want to encourage you to help me out with something. One of the things we run into with the mine each semester is after the couple of weeks we get started, a lot of folks at the church, they don't want to join because it's like they feel like they're, you know, well, it started up a couple of weeks ago, I'll wait till the new semester starts. Well, we need to encourage those folks, look, it doesn't matter. You can jump in any time. Please come to the mine. In fact, the sooner you come, you're, you're going to you know, find some things in the book of Ephesians that are going to be an encouragement to you. And so if you hear of some folks, it's like, well, they're thinking about coming, but because it started a couple weeks ago, they're probably going to not come till next semester. Try to encourage those folks to come, because that's one of the biggest battles I fight with the mine is that after the first couple of weeks, most people just sort of you know, wait till the next semester, and then sometimes they don't even join then. So if you can help encourage me to encourage everyone that you know would be the slightest bit interested in coming to the mine on Tuesday night, anytime, come. Every week stands on its own. It doesn't matter that you missed the first couple of weeks. Just dive in with us the, the next week. I would greatly appreciate that. Before we dive into Ephesians chapter 2 tonight, just a little bit of inter- introductory remarks. One of the cool things you see in the book of Ephesians, and you see this in other books of the Bible as well, is just 
how important it is to God that we all have a solid foundation of, of what we have and what our resources are and, and how to do something before God actually asks us to dive in and do it. It's almost like the, the illustration that comes to my mind, and I'm not the best with this. I think most guys probably aren't. You know, God wants to make sure that I read the entire bit of directions before I dive into trying to put something together or fix something. In fact, my family will tell you, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Um, but that's exactly what we see in the Bible many times. Because in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 really begins the practical exhortations of Christian living. Well, that's the last three chapters. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is just setting sort of the table for us and giving us all the instructions, all the foundation, everything we need so that before he starts telling us, here's how you dive into the Christian life, but here's what you need to know in order to do that effectively. And so that's something to keep in mind. In fact, throughout our study of chapter 1 of Ephesians, we've seen all of the possessions that we have because we're in vital union with Christ. And, and that's really cool. And God wants us to always be reminded of all the resources, all the possessions that we have in Christ. When you come to Ephesians chapter 2, it changes a little bit from our possessions in Christ to our position in Christ. In fact, he starts out in Ephesians chapter 2 talking really about our past position or our position before we knew Christ. And to some they may say, well, that's, that's discouraging, right? God's not using that to discourage us. He's trying to remind us of our past before Christ and what God has done for us since Christ to actually encourage us in the present. So as you read, and we're hopefully going to get through all ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2 tonight. If we don't, we'll pick it up wherever we leave off next week. But if we do, here's what you're going to see. Paul's talking about our position in the past before we met Christ. Then Paul's going to talk about our position in the present, now that we have Christ in our life. Then he's going to talk about our position in the future, what we have to look forward to. And then he's going to come back to the present day and say, oh, and here's some other things about who we are in Christ, our position in Him, that hopefully, that whatever you and I are going to face this week, that these truths will be an encouragement for us. So, with all of that, let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 1. And let's remember, as we come out of chapter 1, the very last thing Paul talked about last week was this incomparable, great power. The power of God that is available to every believer in Jesus Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I as Christians on an everyday basis. That's what he ended chapter 1 reminding us of. Then in chapter 2, and although you and I were dead in your transgressions and sins, wow. Paul's saying, do you all realize, do we remember that before Christ, we were spiritually dead? That, that's no other way to say it. We were dead. All right? We literally see dead people. All right? Because according to the Bible, people before they come to Christ are spiritually dead. And when they come to Christ, they are awakened and they are given spiritual life. And God literally performs a miracle by His resurrection power on everyone who has believed in Jesus Christ. 
So one of the things that we need to remind ourselves of that you hear people today, I, I wish I could see, you know, God do miracles and I wish I could see his power displayed. And, and if I just saw people being raised from the dead and, and I, I would believe or I'd have more faith and all of this. And one of the things I bring them to is this passage in Ephesians 2 that reminds all of us that everyone in this auditorium tonight who's accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We are a walking miracle. We are a testimony of the power of God. Everywhere we go and what we do in life is a testimony to the fact that we were one day dead in our sins and transgressions and God raised us up, literally caused us to stand up again, spiritually speaking. We are the reality of the power of God in this world. And because we now are born into the family of God, we can testify to that great power just because we've accepted Christ as our Savior. And I don't mean to minimize that. That is a huge thing. So we're, we were dead, and look at where we are. So this week, let's remember something. If at a point in our life, God raised us from the dead spiritually, is there anything that I'm going to face this week, this month, and this year that me and God cannot deal with if God raised me from the dead? And that's literally what Paul is reminding the Ephesians of. So in the scrum of everyday life, when we're struggling along and bumping along as Christians, one of the encouraging things to remind ourselves of is where we came from and who we were before Christ and what our position was before Christ. And Paul just says, we all were dead in our transgressions and sins. In fact, he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, you used to formerly live according to this world's present path which implies that we're not living that way anymore, which implies that there's a power now operating in my life that helps me not to live the way I used to live, which also reminds me that when Christ comes into our life, we're not the same. Our lives are to be changing and transforming. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things will be passing away. All things will become new. It's a process. It's a lifelong process. But it's one that is started when we accept Christ as our Savior. God raises us from the dead spiritually, and then our lives begin to change as we grow as Christians. And though we formerly lived this way, we're no longer living that way. And we don't have to live that way. And we don't have to face life with the attitude of, I can't. It's never I can't for the Christian. It's I won't, if we're honest. Because Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if God can raise me from the dead, then He can help me to overcome anything and everything that keeps me from being all that He created me to be and to enjoy the abundant life that He has come to give me. I formerly lived that way. I, that's why I can't use the excuse of, well, that's the way I've always been. Or that's just... You know, that's the way I was born, or that's just the way my family is, and that's just the way we've always done things. You see, none of those statements and none of those excuses work with God, because when God comes in and invades our life through the Holy Spirit of God, He can change us. He can make us a new creation. And though we formerly had this this thing in our life that was just eating us up and, and it was a habit that we couldn't break. It was a destructive sin or something in our life that we could not overcome. That was maybe in the former life. But now that we are in Christ 
and our position is in Christ, we have a power greater than anything else in this universe. And it is a power that can help us overcome that so that we don't have to live that way anymore. We don't have to be there, folks. And we just need to claim that power and claim those promises and allow God to take us places with Him where maybe we never allowed Him to take us before. You'll notice also... As Paul talks about this former life, he basically says there were three primary influences in our life before Christ. The first one he says here in verse 2 is the world's present path. We talk about this world system. And when the Bible talks about this world system, it's talking about a system, a philosophy in the world, if you will, that is anti-Christ and that is anti-righteousness. And the Bible basically says that for the most part, the world is heading down this path. And, and what helps get me off of that path and help me, in a sense, as a salmon to swim against the tide where everybody else is going or upstream or however you want to look at it is the power of God. And it helps me get off the path that everyone else is on and helps me to get on the path that God wants me to be on as I walk with Him so that I'm not influenced by the world's perspective and and what the world says and how the world says I should be and how I should act and all of that. But I'm allowing God to define my life now. Formally, I allowed the world to call the shots in a sense. I got my cue from the world. But now I get my cue from Christ and take my cue from Him. The second major influence, I believe in verse 2, is he's talking here about Satan and the demonic forces. Now, he uses a strange phrase to describe Satan here. He says, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. A couple reasons why he may be using that phrase to refer to Satan. Satan being a spiritual being and yet having influence on the earth sort of is in the air between heaven, the abode of God, and the earth, the abode of human beings. And, and in a sense, he's sort of between those two worlds, if you will. Access here, access here. And yet he really doesn't have any kingdom per se. It's just through the influence that he exerts on human beings and on the world philosophy and the world system down here on this earth. He has no influence in heaven anymore. And it is also very sobering and yet very interesting to note that the Bible points out that Satan and the demonic forces are actually energizing, notice, the sons of disobedience. You see, as a Christian... I need to be energized by the power of God. And there is no greater power in the universe than the power of God. But we do have to remind ourselves and remember that the Bible teaches that those who are disobeying God, those who are rebelling against God, those who want to go against God and against the way of God and against righteousness, they're being energized too. But they're not being energized obviously by God. They're being energized by a spirit And that spirit, I believe, can be traced back to Satan himself. He is energizing. He is empowering. Now, that doesn't absolve them of the responsibility. All human beings open themselves up to that influence. But it's just a reminder that they're not doing what they do in their own power either. 
They have a power behind them just like we have a power behind us. Now, the encouraging thing for us is though we need to respect that power, we do not need to fear that power because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And our power is greater by far than the power of Satan. He is simply a created being. He and the demonic forces need to be respected, but they do not need to be feared. And the final influence in our past before Christ was our own flesh, verse 3, among whom all of us, and so notice Paul lumps all of us in there, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter, we were all there at one time before Christ, where we formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. In other words, human beings left to themselves are going to end up going a path apart from where God wants us to go. That's basically what Paul's saying. You leave a human being alone to themselves, and instead of choosing righteousness and choosing God, human beings are going to go, because it's by our nature. That's why I've shared with people before, you, you don't have to convince too many people that we are born with a sinful nature, because it, if you've ever been a child or a parent, and I think everybody here has at least been a child or a parent, okay? I didn't have to teach my children, nor did my parents have to teach me to do wrong. I did wrong naturally. I stuck my hand in the cookie jar without being told to do, taught how to do that. My parents had to instruct me how to do things right, because I just did wrong by nature. I didn't have to have somebody teach me how to do wrong. And that's exactly what Paul here is saying. So Paul says, here's the influences before Christ. Our flesh, and we would just indulge the flesh. Satan and the demonic forces were certainly an influence in our life, tempting us and all of that. And this world system. All of those influences were bearing upon us. Now, again, we're responsible. But there's a power greater than all of those influences. And it's a power that even though those influences are still going to operate on us after we accept Christ as our Savior, after we become a Christian, in a sense, as we learned even in the book of Romans, they are dethroned. We don't have to go after the world anymore. We, we don't have to, you know, succumb to the world's pressures anymore. We have a power to overcome that. We don't have to give in to the temptation of Satan anymore or the demonic forces. We have a power that can overcome those temptations. We don't have to give in to our flesh anymore. We have a power that is greater than that. And so Paul here is just reminding us of our past position Again, trying not to discourage us, but to show us how far we've come and what God has already done in our life. Even if you're a new Christian, just the change that God has brought about, not only with your possessions in Christ, but now with your position in Christ. And that should be such an encouragement to all of us. Because now we're looking at things from a totally different position. And our position certainly if we understand our position, affects our perspective. And we're going to see that in even a greater way. Because then when you come to chapter 2, verse 4, the first two words are so important. But God. And really what Paul again is saying here to the Ephesians and to us is, 
I don't care what you're dealing with. I don't care what's hammering you. I don't care what you're struggling with, what's going on, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil. I don't care. But God is the answer. In fact, he's the only answer. And yet, in some ways, it's sort of a strange answer. Because the one that is our only help and the one who can truly help us is the one back before we knew God in a personal way through Christ that we had actually personally offended. We didn't want to have anything to do with Him. We wanted to go our own way and not His way. It was His righteousness that we wanted nothing to do with. We wanted to live our own lives the way we wanted to. And so if we offended anybody, it was God. And yet it's this very God that wants to now help us. In fact, he's the only one that really can help us. And Paul reminds us, yeah, our God is so great because, first of all, he's rich in mercy. Okay, yeah, we didn't want to go his way for a while, but now we've changed our minds. And now we've accepted Christ as our Savior, and now we want to follow him. And God is okay with that. So okay with that, he says, through the blood of my son Jesus, we're going to forgive all your sin, we're going to wipe it all out, we're going to start fresh, we're going to start clean, and let's, let's start going now on grabbing a hold of life the way I intended for human beings to grab a hold of life and enjoy life. That's the richness of his mercy. That word mercy also doesn't just speak about somebody who, who uh, can help, but somebody who desperately wants to help. He, he really wants to help us, and, and not in necessarily a, a pity way, like he pities us, but, but his help in our lives is just something that's not grudging or reluctant. It's not like God was up there going, well, I guess in order to be a good God, I guess I should help these people. No, Paul's trying to paint us a picture that God's attitude was never like that with us. That because God created us and because he loves us so much, he wants to help us more than we want his help. Even as a Christian, I've always tried to remind myself that one of the messages I get ringing through the Bible is that God always wants to help me more than I'm willing to ask for his help. I'm not bothering him. I'm not upsetting him. It's not trivial to him. If it matters to me, it matters to God. If it's a care for me, it's a care for God. And I have to constantly remind myself of that because he's rich in mercy. And notice also these adjectives that Paul is using here because of his great love with which he loved us. God doesn't just love us. He greatly loves us. In fact, we will never find a love in this universe any greater than the love that God has for us. I always tell people, if you reject God's love for you, you will never find a love in this universe that loves you any more than God does. So if you're going to turn your back on the love of God, there is no love that you're going to find any greater than that. Because he, he doesn't just love us. He greatly loves us. And if we ever begin to doubt that, all we have to do is remind ourselves of the cross. That, that God left the glories of heaven, took upon himself human flesh and allowed himself as God, the creator of the universe, to be nailed to a cross and killed, murdered, so that we could have eternal life. Wow. You see, God, he he didn't just verbalize how much he loved us. He laid it on the line. He said, I'll show you how much, and I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm going to be crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, 
right after Passover. There's going to be thousands upon thousands of people there. I'm not going to be ashamed to show the world how much I love all of you. That's how much God loves us, and we need to be reminded. Notice verse 5. Even though, again, he reminds us, we were dead in transgressions. It wasn't even like we could help ourselves at all, Paul said. A dead person can't help themselves. If they're going to be revived, or you know, it's going to have to be from outside source. And Paul's trying to give us that picture of where we were in position with God before Christ came into our life. We were dead. And there was not a thing we could do to bring light. But by turning by faith to Christ, God, notice, made us alive together with Christ. And then he just sort of like is overcome and says, by grace we are saved. Because it had nothing to do with us because we were dead. But God in His goodness, in His mercy, in His great love, He made us alive. He made us alive. He brought us back from the dead. And if God can bring us back from being spiritually dead, there's nothing that we're going to face in this life that He and I can't overcome together. That's how great His power is. Now I want to encourage you as well with this. I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 2 here too how now Paul's transitioning from our past position to our present. And he's saying we were made alive with Christ. And, and this word with throughout this passage, with Christ, in Christ, is so important that we get this concept. Because what Paul is saying that the Christian we need to remind ourselves of is when we became a Christian, we were so intertwined with Christ that now we can never be separated. It, it, it's, it's the only way I can picture it, and I don't know why this came to my mind, because my wife will tell you, I haven't baked anything in my life. But the only thing I could come up with is this. It's like taking a few simple ingredients, say, to make a cake, all right? They can be separated at first. You know, you throw your butter, your sugar, your flour, something like that into a bowl, and you can see the separation of those ingredients. But once you begin to mix those ingredients together, and then you bake the cake... I don't know about you, but I don't think I can separate the butter and the eggs and the flour after it's been mixed and after it's been baked. It's impossible. It, it, they, they are so intertwined that they become one. And, and they're, they're vitally linked to each other. And where one goes, the other has to go. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to us in our present position now with Christ here's what we have to realize yeah we were at one time dead and separated but now God has made us alive with Christ and and he has so intertwined each of us together with Christ that there is no way you can begin to try to pull us apart it's absolutely impossible and so Paul wants to encourage us with that where we go, God goes. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, if you take your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you join that to a prostitute, the Holy Spirit's gone with you. Because we can't compartmentalize. We can't like pull out the Holy Spirit of God out of our lives, set Him over here, go sin on our own. No, everywhere we go, we take God with us as a Christian. Everything we do, we do with God. We cannot separate the two after we become a Christian. 
All the more incentive why Paul told the Corinthians, so live to honor God because you and God are doing whatever you're doing and you're doing it together. Because there can be no extraction of that relationship after you are brought together. And, notice verse 6, and not only did he bring us together, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. You see, from God's perspective, and I realize it's hard for us while we're still here on earth, even as Christians, to wrap our mind around this. But here's what we have to accept by faith. That from God's perspective, we're already seated with Christ in heaven. Now, yeah, we're down here on earth and we're bebopping, bumping through life. But from God's perspective, it's as if we're already there. Because in his mind, we are going to be there. And there's nothing that's going to keep us from getting there. So we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And, and the thing that this should do for us here in the present is to encourage us that not only has God brought us from the deepest depths when we were dead in transgressions and sins, but now He has raised us to the highest heights, seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. So He's taken us from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And Paul is saying, if God has already done that for you, and in His mind you're already there, then let's live there. Let, let's, let's live as if we are there, if you will, and live with that kind of mentality. See, one of the things I wrote in my Bible was this, where we are seated determines so much of our perspective on life. And God wants to remind us as Christians, you're not seated here in this auditorium in Chandler, Arizona. From God's perspective, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places where His power is supreme and there is nothing above Him or you. Everything is underneath of us. And we need to keep that perspective. For instance, let me illustrate what I'm, what I'm blabbering about here. A king or a queen sits on the throne. And the reason they have the power and privileges that they do is because of the position. They're seated on the throne. The reason why our president has power and privilege is because he is seated at a desk in what we call the Oval Office in the White House. So where he or she is seated determines an awful lot. And that's why God is saying through Paul to the Ephesians and to us, don't forget where you and I as Christians are always seated. We are seated in a place of privilege and power and yes, responsibility, but we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And everything we learned in chapter 1 at the end is under Christ's feet. And there is nothing in this universe that is above Christ or then above us who are seated with Him. Therefore, let's not allow these things to so beat us and discourage us and get us down, but let's allow Christ and where we are seated to give us a different perspective. And remind us of the power and the position that we have in Christ. Because now we are inextricably mixed and joined and unified with Christ. And we cannot be separated. And Paul wants us to be encouraged by that. And then Paul looks ahead to the future. Where in verse 7 he says, oh and by the way, 
This is where you were in the past. This is where you are now. And this is where you're going to be to demonstrate in the coming ages, the ages upon ages that keep passing. In other words, throughout eternity, the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of work so that no one can boast. As we're seated in the heavenlies, as one day we actually are in heaven with Christ, as the ages go forward, we can never look back and go, well, you know, the reason why I'm here and because of me, right? No, we'll never be. We'll always have to point to Jesus and say, the reason I'm here is because of him. And the reason I have what I have throughout of eternity is because of Him. It's all Him. But thank God He loved me that much and He was willing to share all of this with me. And and here's the thing I want you to see that that was so exciting for me to learn as I studied verse 7. Because a lot of people look at verse 7 as just looking back to what, say, Christ did on the cross and saying, well, you know, throughout eternity, we're just going to be so thankful looking back for the kindness and the love and the grace that God demonstrated on the cross of Christ. And that's certainly part of it, but that's not all of it. Here's what verse 7 is teaching. That throughout eternity, God will imaginatively display His kindness to us forever and ever. So it's not like God says to us, yeah, Jeff, a couple thousand years ago I was kind to you and that's going to do you for the rest of eternity. Don't expect any more kindness from me. That's it. That's all you get. No, what Paul is saying here, which blows my mind, is that God is going to constantly and continually look for ways to be kind And show his grace and his love for Jeff Royce throughout eternity. And I just put my name in there. You put your name in there. Now, think about this. We may love somebody very much. In fact, there's even been books written that especially help husbands on this. You know, a hundred different ways to show your wife you love them and that kind of thing. You know, get get imaginative, get creative. I don't care how much as human beings we love somebody and we want to show them how much they mean to us... You start thinking about different ways to to show that kindness and show that love and be creative and be, uh, you know, all of that. You sort of run out of ideas after a while. What Paul is saying here is, guess what? Our God is so great that he's never going to run out of ideas to surprise us, to show us how much he loves us. So... Here's the cool thing. People go, what are we going to do for all of eternity? Yeah, it's a long time, whatever. And there's a lot of different things we're going to do in heaven. You know, we're going to continue to learn about God because he's infinite. We're going to serve God. But here's another cool thing that Paul reminds us of here. That God, throughout eternity, is going to continue to have some surprises and gifts and things like that for us. That's going to mean something just to me and to you. And and a million years from now, when we're in heaven, God's going to come up one day and and, and share something with you, and you're going to be just as blown away by that, and it's going to be, wow, God, that that was really cool. That was something else that you've done. And He's going to continue to do this for us throughout eternity. That's what Paul's saying. 
That's what the Christian has to look forward to. So it's not like when we get to heaven and we see what maybe our inheritance is and what heaven looks like and stuff and, you know, meet a few people, shake a few hands, you know, all that kind of stuff that we, oh, this is it. No, God is saying, I'm going to give you stuff to look forward to forever because I'm going to continue to manifest my kindness to you throughout eternity and I'm going to be very imaginative. Now i got to tell you, when Jeff Roy starts thinking about ways that God can be imaginative to show his kindness towards me, I can come up with some wild things. But don't forget something. The Bible says in Ephesians 3.20, a verse we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, that God is able to do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think. Wow. I'm just going to leave it there because I can't say add any more to that. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Now he went from the past, our position in the past, our position in the present, our position in the future, and now he brings us back to the present again to end this passage with. And here's one of the things he reminds us of right up front in Ephesians 2.10. The word workmanship, really cool Greek word, poema. It's a word actually where we get the word poem from. The word came to mean throughout history and its use a masterpiece, a work of art. And Paul is saying to every Christian, I want you to know something, Christian. Not only do you have this incomparable power available to you, not only this power that, that raised us from the dead and seated us with Christ in heaven, but I want to remind you of something. God is rich in mercy. He loves you with a great love. Oh, and by the way, you are even right now a work of art in God's eyes. You are a masterpiece that God is forming and creating Right here, right now. That's why many times, especially in the Old Testament, the Bible would use the illustration of the potter and the clay. Now, for many of us who are not into to sculpting or pottery or things like that, that may not mean much to us. But back then in that culture, they were seeing pottery and sculpting and all of that all the time, and it meant something to them. That, that, that gave them a real cool picture that here God is, the master, who's, who's fully engaged in this work of art. Because if any of you have ever done pottery or whatever, you realize that if, if, if you're going to sink your hands into pottery, you've got to get your all, and, and you're going to get dirty. And, and, and as you begin to form the, the walls of that pot, as you begin to push down and make the hole and, and all of that and trim it and all of that, it's all over you. And it reminds us that God is not half-hearted about engaging in our lives and, and caring about every detail and what we're going through and everything. He is this potter who's making this beautiful masterpiece called you and called me. We are his workmanship, his poema, his beautiful poem that he is writing. And he wants us to be reminded of that every day that we live. We are his workmanship. What we need to do as the clay is allow the potter to basically do his work. Someone came up to Michelangelo one time and said, you know, what are you doing? And there was this, just this big block of stone. And Michelangelo replied, I'm trying to free an angel from this stone. 
And that's exactly what God is doing with our lives. You see, He sees what we can be. Not where we were, not where we are, but what we can be if we just allow the master artist to keep shaping us and molding us because we are His workmanship. Created, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. The good works, the word good in the original language means that which is profitable or beneficial. So that the work in a sense that God is doing on me and in me and with me, then he wants me to take the work that he's doing in my life and allow this this beautiful art, this, this masterpiece to spill over and to bring joy and refreshment and encouragement to others as well to benefit them to profit them, to say, wow, my life wouldn't be the same without that beautiful piece of pottery that God has made in my life. And that's what God wants to do with all of us and is doing with all of us. But we've got to remember our position because where we sit determines an awful lot. And God, as you and I face this next week, before we maybe meet back on Sunday or meet back here again next Tuesday, wants to remind us we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Everything else is under our feet. And that perspective is going to change the way we look at everything and should in a positive way. That's why Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3.1, Since we have been raised with Christ, let's set our affection on things above, not things on the earth. Let's go after heavenly things. Let's lay up treasure in heaven. Because if truly that's where we are and that's where our citizenship is, then what does this earth have for us anymore? And whatever material worldly goods we have, let's use them somehow to impact eternity. Because we certainly can't take it with us. Illustration. There are two tombs in the Middle East... Both parties that were placed in those tombs believed in life after death. One is a tomb, very familiar, of a king of Egypt named Tutankhamun. And he believed in the afterlife, but if you go to his tomb, his tomb is filled with worldly treasure and gold and all of those you know, great things that we see in the museums. Because to him, that's all there is. And hopefully I can take it with me to the other side because that's what it is, right? That's, that's the perspective. That's what life's all about, right? And then there's another tomb in the Middle East. A tomb that's probably carved into the side of a mountain. A small little cave. And in that tomb, another man was laid whose name was Jesus who also believed in life after death. But if you walk into that tomb, there's nothing there. Because to him, it wasn't about the treasures of earth. It was about living for what's coming hereafter. And it wasn't about having a big tomb so that I can take it all with me to the other side. It's about leaving this all behind because this isn't what really matters. 
What really matters is what's coming. And as I've shared with people for years, here's what you need to remind yourself of and remember as a Christian. God does bless our lives abundantly here on earth in so many different ways, so richly. But God is not going to give us His best and biggest blessings down here because if that be the case, then we can't enjoy it for all of eternity. If that be the case, it's going to wear out and we can't take it with us. God is reserving His very best and biggest things for us when we get to heaven so that we can enjoy it for all of eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but as we learn in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, God has also blessed us. But He's blessed us, and here's what God wants us to focus on, the fact that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And to allow those promises and those thoughts to carry us through so that we don't get so caught up on what we have and what we don't have here on earth, but that we look to a greater country, to a more permanent dwelling where Jesus Christ is waiting for us. Let me leave you with these promises. Jesus said to his disciples, John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise. That's what Jesus wants us to grab a hold of. I hope tonight that through these first ten verses of Ephesians 2, we have gotten a glimpse into the position that we have because we're Christians. Yes, the possessions were in chapter 1, But now Paul wants us to be reminded of the position that we have in Christ. All right, we have a few minutes. I'm going to open it up for questions or comments before we close in prayer tonight. We'll just take a couple. Anyone, just raise your hand. Chapter 2, verse 7, it says, To demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Um, Is he demonstrating his grace just to us? Or is there somebody else involved or some other beings involved to whom his grace is being demonstrated? Yeah, it's a a great point, John. And and, and actually, God is going to demonstrate his grace towards us to to all the universe, to the angels, to everyone, anyone and everyone. We are a demonstration of God's grace to the universe, which is a really cool thing. Because the, the Bible teaches us the angels don't get this. The angels never had to be redeemed. Okay? If you study theology, you realize that there was a time in history at some point where Lucifer and other angels were given a choice of whether they wanted to serve God or rebel. And Lucifer and many, many angels who became demonic chose to rebel against God. But once they made that choice, they were locked into that choice for all of eternity. And those good angels, if you will, 
the Michaels, the Gabriels, at least the ones whose names we know, they decided to stay and serve God. And they are now locked into that choice for all of eternity. But as far as accepting Christ as their Savior, as far as having the blood of Christ cleanse them and forgive them, they know nothing about that. In fact, Peter talks about the fact that the angels sort of look into this thing called salvation, and it is a wonder to them. And as they see the church, and as they see God create the church, and as they see people coming into the church and accepting Christ and being part of the church and coming to Bible studies and growing and understanding the Bible and all of that, it fascinates them. It absolutely fascinates them because all of us are trophies of God's grace and we are a demonstration of the power of God. And it is a power that is working in our lives that is totally something that they've never personally as angels experienced. And it just blows them away. So remember that. You're blowing angels away. Keep going after it. Maybe angels fascinate you. Well, guess what? We fascinate angels. So, I guess it goes both ways. One more. And um, verse 2 where it says, The kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. Right. Would that be the same spirit like what First John 4, 1 talks about? Test the spirit. Make sure it's from God. Like yes. in Corinthians where it says even angel, even Satan can transform himself as an angel of light. Yes, good, good question. If you read 1 John 4, 1, that verse says, Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because there are false prophets in the world. And that verse and many other verses teach this, that human beings can be the mouthpiece but that we have to realize and discern as Christians especially that there's always a spirit energizing and a spirit behind what is being said. And that spirit can either be traced back to the spirit of God or it can either be traced back to the spirit of Satan and the demonic realm. And that's the only two choices. In fact, even as Christians, something that we need to be made aware of is even as Christians... If I'm not careful, I can allow what comes out of my mouth to actually be traced back to an origin of Satan rather than God's spirit. Let me give you a biblical example. Jesus kept telling his followers, I'm going to the cross. I've got to go to the cross. I've got to die for sin. If I don't die for sin, you can't have eternal life. Peter, the disciples at that point, they don't get it. And Peter's trying to talk Jesus out of going to Jerusalem and going to the cross. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. For what you are saying is not coming from God. What you are saying by trying to discourage me from going to the cross and following the Father's will for my life here on earth is actually born from the pits of hell. It is coming from that spirit and so all of us just have to remind ourselves, and that's why the Bible says to Christians, walk in the Spirit. Allow the Spirit of God to lead us and guide us and allow the Spirit of God to, to help us say the words that we need to say throughout the day because we certainly don't want to be saying things that, that, that actually is going to be making Satan happy 
rather than pleasing God? And so, yeah, that's a great question and a great, great truth that the Bible teaches. All right, guys, let's close in prayer. A couple reminders. If you want to help with the kiosks or greet for the mine and be a volunteer, please see my wife in the lobby right after this is over. If this is your first time uh, in the mine and you want to be a part of going after the edge car this year, you can get an entry form as you walk out. And then again, don't forget next week, we're going to just start taking names for those who are seriously interested in going to Israel with us in the spring of 2009. And uh, we'll begin to take, again, it's not an obligation yet. That will be coming, but we just want to begin to get an idea. If we go to Israel, April, May 2009, and we take a group from Cornerstone, how many people would be willing to go with us and go over to the Holy Land? And again, it's probably going to be 10 days in Israel, an extra four days to go down into Egypt. We do the footsteps of Jesus in Israel, the footsteps of Moses throughout Egypt. 14 days total, probably looking at around $3,500 per person. So that will give you an idea of are you really interested or not. We would love to have as many of you as can go because I think it would be a life-changing trip for you. We're going to be doing Bible studies throughout the Holy Land it's just going to be awesome. So we'd love to have as many of you can go as possible. We'll, we'll take the mind to Israel. How about that? Road trip for the mind. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be cool. All right. Let's close in prayer. I'll let you folks go. God, thank you so much for the encouragement that you have given us tonight. And God, I just have to say it. I needed to be reminded that I am your workmanship, that you are trying to create in Jeff Royce a, a work of art that that will bring you honor and that will, Lord, profit and benefit others in this life as well. And let me, Lord, allow you, the master artist, to just take my life. And as the clay, let, let me surrender to the working that you want to do on the wheel of this life. And, Lord, just work a beautiful work. And, and Lord, help me to see myself this week through your eyes. And to see where I am in you and to claim the promises and the provision and the possessions that I have in you. Help me to keep my head up high and not to let so much discourage me. But Lord, help me with your power to be able to rise above it. And bring me back next week once again to be re-encouraged, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we love you. Have a great week. See you next week.